0: This is Maxine and the Planet's Unknown, a sci fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio, I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children, and do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 8, Part 2, Chapter 15. Selena Simon and the Planets Unknown was published on Earth May 29th, 2356. It was the first big hit of the post-colonization world and one of the first books to use the colonization wave as a backdrop. Or at least one of the first not-on-adult themes, that is. People had some very interesting ideas about what kind of intercourse mankind would find itself having in the outer reaches of space, all of which had failed to pan out so far. The books were written by B.A. White, a reclusive writer who lived, it was initially assumed, somewhere on Earth, though where exactly was anyone's guess. Keeping one's location a secret, especially on a place as dense with trackable data as Earth was, that was something of a feat in and of itself. This led most people to assume that the name B.A. White was a pseudonym, and that if they wanted any truly reliable information about the author's identity, why, they'd just have to hack the publishing house's accounting records for themselves. Which is exactly what they did within a month of the book's initial success. Remarkably, this also proved fruitless. However B.A. White was being paid, it wasn't by any means that anyone on Earth, Mars, Cirrus, or the OmniNet at large could figure out. Eventually, most people settled on the notion that B.A. White lived on the moon. By the appearance of the third book, Selina Simon and the Planet of Cold Fire, this theory had pulled ahead of the rest for reasons that held no more water than any of the other theories. But it had caught people's imagination, and all but the true diehards had grown tired of the hunt anyway. The success of that first book had taken everyone off guard. The original publishing house, Small Pond Entertainment, was a tiny outfit with an Earth-only distribution license, and the first two weeks of its availability was nothing special at all. But then, Jennifer Abindi, the wildly popular 24th century OmniNet talk show host, announced that she had loved the book so much that she had given copies to all 13 of her adopted children. After that, Small Pond maxed out their distribution reach within a week and a half. Then, the piracy began on Mars and the outposts, and Small Pond signed a distribution deal with an omni-licensed house as fast as they possibly could, before there was nothing left to sell. Then... Streaming series, VR modules, spin offs in just about any medium you can imagine, merchandising out the wazoo. IRL theme parks in Barcelona, Manila, and Orlando, not to mention one on Mars in a specifically constructed annex of West Olympus City. Through all of this, B.A. White remained a mystery. And by the time the book series had reached Maxine some 137 years later, everyone assumed the writer was dead. Though, there was the oft-made joke that if anyone in the galaxy had enough money to buy their way out of death, it certainly had to be B.A. White. Selina Simon and the Planets Unknown centered on a precocious young girl named, appropriately, Selina Simon. Selena was an 11-year-old when the book began, and she was playing somewhere that she had been told time and time again she should not, the escape pod bays aboard her century ship The Walter. These were not toys, she'd been informed, and they certainly were not for little girls to play in. It should be noted, before we go any further, that real century ships do not have escape pods. If there were a disaster 60 years from the nearest help, it is far better for everyone on board to die quickly and relatively painlessly in the vacuum of space than for them to drift slowly, starving to death in individualized tin cans lazily tumbling through the void. But neither of those scenarios make for best-selling YA novels, and so a little license can be understood. But part of the problem was that adults on the ship didn't seem to understand that Selena was not playing. She was 11 years old. Eleven-year-olds do not play. They explore. They research. They seek inspiration and knowledge in the farthest reaches of the known world, which for Selina was not very far, as the Walter was one of the smallest ships in the fleet, and that meant that the habitation bay, the town Selina lived in, was one of the smallest towns in the known universe. This had made it necessary for Selina To learn how to access places on the ship, she was technically not allowed to. And by technically, she meant explicitly. Hence, her third fateful foray into the escape pod bays. She'd spent much of her time that day ignoring the escape pods themselves. Their hatches were always sealed. And while Selena was certain she would eventually figure out some way around this, there was an art to breaking and entering. And like any art, it requires focus and creativity. She needed to be in the zone. And well, today, she'd already been yelled at at school for not paying attention to her schoolwork, and at home for not paying attention to her schoolwork, and eventually she would get busted being where she wasn't supposed to be, and she would be lectured by the sheriff for spending her obvious potential on getting into trouble when she should be at home, in her room, paying attention to her schoolwork. Just the words schoolwork made her brain feel like a stone in a tin can only just big enough to contain it, so that it would just thunk heavily, lethargically, and uncreatively against the sides of her skull. So clearly not in a good place for solving the problem of the sealed and alarmed hatches on the escape pods. Better to sit in the cockpit of one of the inert service mechs and pretend to fight invading space aliens like in one of those old Earth movies, She'd done just that for a good long time. Then she had ridden on a pallet mover for a while, pretending to be escaping someone who was chasing her, albeit very slowly. Then she had sat at one of the control decks, pretending she was piloting a ship of her own. Turns out, adult exploring involves a lot of pretending. In her mind, she was flying her ship to unknown worlds, as opposed to the known world that she was actually riding toward and would never see, because Selina had the foul, stinky, no-good-luck to be a member of a mid-journey generation. This meant she was born in space, she would grow old in space, and she would eventually die in space. Selina tried not to think of this because it was so unfair, so wrong, that it always just made her angry, so angry that when she failed to stop thinking about it, she slammed her open hand down on the control panel. Suddenly, the panel sprang to life. There were a series of lights and readouts and reports and projections which whirred over the touch screen surfaces. Selena frantically tried to parse this info, trying to see if any of it was announcing that she had triggered the alarm system and that there were security personnel headed her direction right that second. In the end, it was too much to even try to make sense of, and she decided that she was better off just making a run for it. She slid out of the chair and grabbed her knapsack, and had just turned toward the door at the far end of the bay when one of the escape pods to her right made a noise. She stopped and turned toward it. The round hatch, which was the only part of the pod exposed to the bay, made an unsucking sound. Then there was a whir and a hiss, and the hatch rolled to the side, revealing the interior of the pod well this was just too good to pass up. What Selena didn't realize was that at that very moment the bridge of the Walter was in a panic. The Walter had been caught in the gravity well of a wormhole and the crew had been fighting valiantly to pull the ship free of this vortex which, if it got them, would spit them out potentially anywhere in the universe, perhaps even galaxies away, if it didn't just rip the ship apart entirely. And they had almost done it. They had fought a primal force of the universe, gravity, to a stalemate. But now, they were at the very end of their resources, and soon, they would start to lose ground. Then, some brilliant ensign had come up with a plan they just needed a little push to win this tug-of-war. What if they jettisoned escape pods on the port side, one at a time? The propulsive force of just one would probably be enough to push them free. Likely, not more than three would be needed. The captain ordered the ensign to do it. At that moment, Selena was trying out the shape memory of the seat pads in Pod 3 in the port side emergency bay. She heard Pod 1 launch, but she'd never heard a sound like it before and didn't know what to make of it. It was kind of a shoop, but with an N somewhere in there. Then she heard it again. Schnoop or maybe shoomp. Just as she decided that she should probably check it out, the hatch of Pod 3 spun home and resealed itself, and that shrinking crescent sliver of the portside emergency escape bay was the last Selena Simon saw of the Walter. Or at least, that is what you should tell anyone who has not gotten to Book 8 in the series. The Walter pulled free of the wormhole. Pod 3 did not. And Galaxies Away is exactly where Selena Simon was sent. Ejected on the far side of three galaxies over, Selena had the profound good fortune to crash land on a planet profound good fortune being relative to the aforementioned probability of starving to death in the void of space. The whole thing here gets highly improbable. Not only does the wormhole send Selena right to a planet, but a planet that is habitable and inhabited. The insane odds against this set of circumstances did not seem to bother the reading public in the slightest. Critics chalk this up to the spunkiness of the heroine, and the tempo of the writing, and the fact that it was fast-paced but still gave the reader room to let their imaginations roam, and also the relationships. Which brings us back to the inhabitants of the planet Selina crashed on. The planet was named Managerius, and its inhabitants were all talking animals, Mostly woodland animals, beavers, otters, skunks, rabbits, badgers, there was the odd predator, wolves, tigers, some bears. All of them standing upright, all of them wearing the kind of outfits you would expect to see on a London banker in the late 19th century, or a college professor in pretty much any century. All of them spoke English, which was convenient as it was one of the three most commonly spoken languages where Selena came from. In the first book, all of this was just kind of taken for granted, likely because the intended audience had been 8 to 10-year-olds who, while discriminating in their own idiosyncratic way, are not inclined to sit through 17 chapters of Selena piecing together a gesture-based language with which to communicate her most basic needs to the naked inhabitants of an alien world. By the fifth book, intuiting that their audience was continuing to read the books as they got older and more sophisticated sedentary B.A. White felt compelled to shoehorn in an explanation about a transport ship of zoo animals that had also been whisked through the very same wormhole that had nabbed Selena. Then there was some vague notions of time travel and relativity, and the arc of evolution kind of sprinkled on to the already iffy premise of filling a ship full of wild animals and firing it into space. It worked. People loved it. And everyone on the receiving end of the money fountain was quite pleased. Back to Selena and the planet of English speaking animals. Selena had crash landed in the middle of a park in the heart of Managerius' largest city on what would have been the planet's equivalent of a very pleasant Sunday afternoon. After her eyes adjusted to the flood of sunlight coming into the pod, Selina saw dozens of furry faces staring at her in gauppy concern and fear. If she could have seen her own face, she would have seen a hairless reflection of these same expressions. She froze and she stared. After much murmuring on the part of the managerians, an otter in a natty tweed coat paired with a purple neck scarf for a daring splash of color was nominated to poke Selena with his umbrella. On every planet in the universe, it would seem, the very first step in scientific discovery is always poke it with a stick. The otter was edging his way toward the hatch opening when a voice called out, Oi! What's all this, then? The otter looked to his right, then quickly backed off to his left. As he disappeared from Selina's view, two other animals suddenly appeared. One was a Labrador, and the other was a boar, and both were wearing policemen's uniforms in the old British Bobby style. This was all elaborately described in the book, B.A. White indulged in obsessive details about the shape of the hats and the set of the belts. All of this would fuel insane speculation on the part of the series' cult-like readership. The references were so antiquated and so specific. Literary academics and essayists would publish long, long papers on how this was all a deliberate comment on the first great golden age of children's literature from the Victorian period of the now defunct United Kingdom, a colonial power, and how the influence of this period had remained explicit well into the 21st century before it then became anathema for the next two centuries. Critics felt that White's calling it up and putting that tradition front and center once again was a dual commentary on the need for intellectual honesty, since many of the books that were so diligently evading specific references to the period were still implicitly building on its nearly inescapable conventions, and speaking to a kind of need for uh, cultural truth and reconciliation that such exiled traditions needed to be recognized for both their crimes and their contributions, and then reintegrated into the larger cultural discourse now that humanity was venturing beyond its own solar system and would, if humanity were to encounter an alien race, enter a new phase of our story. One where we would, by obvious contrast, share one singular identity. Human. Essentially, if we were to be humanity, we would be all of humanity, and our days of picking and choosing would be over. Other people thought B.A. White was trolling everyone, or that the author was just really nuts and that this focus on a long dead period of a long gone political structure was a symptom of that condition. Some thought that White was a vampire, and that this was a reference to the period of the author's actual childhood. This group also believed that White lived on the dark side of the moon out of necessity. While they were the smallest group of diehard White fans, the Pro-Vamp party was easily the most prolific. They filled the Omninet with unfounded speculation on the writer’s presumed immortality and even more presumed, extremely complicated sex life. In spite of all the poking and the gruff demeanor of the police animals, Selena soon found that the inhabitants of Managerius were a very agreeable bunch. They did have questions, most of which were asked by a rabbit with a slow and considered manner who took in each of Selina's answers with an, I see, or indeed, or the occasional quite so. Finally, after she had told him her whole story and everything else she knew, the rabbit, who had been introduced as Vice Secretary Harbaugh, jotted down a couple of things on a triplicate sheet, blotted a large stamp on an ink pad, slammed it across the form, then did the same with a slightly smaller stamp, then ripped off the top form and handed it to Selina. Selina looked at the sheet in her hand. At the top, the rabbit had printed her name, then, where there was a space for her address, she had put, formerly, spaceship. Across the front of the form was stamped, citizen. Then, across that was stamped provisional. Selina said, but I don't want to be a citizen. Harbaugh said, well, that seems a a tad ungrateful. Selina said, I have to return to my ship, the Walter. I have to return to my family. I see, quite so, said Harbaugh. Unfortunately, we can offer you no help in that department. It has long been considered by a significant majority of the citizenry of Managerius that space travel is a waste of time, and also unseemly. We do wish you luck in your endeavors, though. Unseemly, indeed. Unsanitary. Unsanitary? Quite. Quite. We do wish you luck in your endeavors, though. Selina didn't know where to start. But, but I, but where will I live? Well, you are a citizen now, however provisional, so I suppose you can live anywhere you'd like. Selina stared at him mutely. Harbaugh smiled sympathetically. We do wish you luck in your endeavors, though. Then Harbaugh brightened, for he suddenly realized there was another form to be filled out. That reminds me, where would you like to have your property sent? Property? Yes, yes, the object you left in the park. We certainly can't leave it sitting there. A youngling might decide to climb on it and wind up injuring themselves. The next chapter concerned Selena wandering the streets of this strange world she'd found herself in and finding the animal people she encountered to be unfailingly polite and unfailingly unhelpful. By the end of the evening, she had wandered back to her pod because she had no idea where else to go. She climbed in, closed the hatch, and cried herself to sleep feeling terribly sad that she had taken her family and her friends and her little town aboard the Walter so much for granted, and that she hadn't listened when they had said that some places were not meant for little girls to play in. This is where the whole allegory to Victorian London kind of falls apart. If you actually tried to sleep in a park in Victorian London, you would have been immediately stabbed to death for whatever could be found on you. Selina was not stabbed to death. Instead, she woke up the next morning to find someone rapping on the hatch of the pod and shouting, Ahoy in there! I, sh- I say ahoy! Selena opened the hatch and came face to face with a badger. This was the introduction of Mr. Humphrey's mr humphrey's would become something of a sensation there would be t-shirts and lunchboxes action figures and costume kits the omninet would be flooded with humphrey's themed backdrops and wallpapers official vr spin-offs and unofficial fanfic vrs all of wildly varying quality and good taste as the fan base grew older And the book's cross-generational boundaries, there would also be body art, lingerie, and adult toys all themed around a fictional badger with a British accent. And while most of it would involve a picture of Mr. Humphreys, even more of it would involve a quote. It was something that Mr. Humphreys said at the end of the chapter in which he was introduced, Chapter 3. In the chapter, Mr. Humphreys introduced himself to Selina and then told her that she had to be quick because they had so much work to do. Hello, my name is Mr. Humphreys, and as you can see, I am a badger. Now, you do have to be quick because we do have so much work to do. He began to turn away and then remembered something, so he turned back to Selina and said, I'm sorry, uh, you are... Selina said, I'm Selina Simon, and I'm a human. Mr. Humphreys raised one furry eyebrow. Hmm, what an odd thing to be. Yep. Come along, then. Mr. Humphreys had come with a machine of his own design a great wooden contraption of levers and pulleys that he used to haul Selena's escape pod up out of the ground and onto the back of an automated cart. To call the cart a car or a truck or even an automobile would be a stretch. It partly crawled and partly rolled and there were pieces of it that rotated and spun and whirly gigged and otherwise kept things from flying apart at the seams. All of this was powered by a stout, pot-bellied engine that glowed red and swelled to a terrifying bulge before belching out a billow of steam that set the entire thing tumbling into motion. Selena more or less went along with all this because she had no plan of her own, and this badger was the first person to show any interest in her predicament. At all. At the very least, he seemed to have a way that she could get out of the park, and Mr. Harbaugh had made it abundantly clear that she could not leave her capsule there indefinitely, and that it would be towed if she did not come up with a solution, and soon. It wasn't that Selina had any particular use for the pod, now that it was no longer protecting her from the lethal vacuum of space, but it was the only thing she owned. And the only thing she had from the Walter, where her family and friends and life and school still resided. And now there was a badger levering it onto a moving platform and inviting her to join him behind some kind of great round captain's wheel, which is apparently how he operated his thingamajig. Selina climbed on board, and Mr. Humphreys set a course for the outskirts of town. As the machine rumbled, tumbled, and burped along, the furry citizens scrambled out of the way in as dignified a way as one can scramble. Then they would turn and watch the lurching beast with its odd cargo and even odder passenger until it had passed from view. Along the way, Mr. Humphreys explained to Selina that he disagreed with Mr. Harbaugh and the generally accepted wisdom on Managerius that held space travel in such low esteem. He, for one, was anxious to get out into the wider galaxy and see the sights, and was not going to be deterred by the unfounded prejudices of his squeamish neighbors. He was, of course, as aware as they were that outer space was full of space germs, but he was a badger who had maintained a rigorous program of hardy exercise designed to keep him fit and preternaturally resistant to the filth that lay beyond the planet's atmosphere. He assumed that Selena must have taken the same precautions as he noticed a lack of boils or putrid smells emanating from her. So, she herself was already proof of an essential part of his hypothesis. Space travel does not have to mean bad hygiene. One could maintain one's standards even in the void. Furthermore, he had spent several years constructing a spaceworthy vessel no less impressive than his space capsule moving machine on which she herself was currently a passenger. Up until this point, Selena had been along for the ride mainly just happy that there was a ride to be along for. As Mr. Humphreys continued to talk, however, Selena found herself waking up to wonder if perhaps she should have stayed where she was and seen what else might come along. Or perhaps she herself should have taken some initiative. Her parents and her teachers were always going on and on about her potential and how she needed to not waste it. Maybe... She'd had the potential to not end up riding along on this wobbly jalopy with a mentally deranged badger, and maybe she had wasted that potential. This feeling only got more pronounced as they approached what seemed to be their destination. There, sitting in a clearing and stretching several teetering meters into the sky was what appeared to be a house tied to a shed supporting a treehouse that was being used to prop up a greenhouse to which someone had tied an observatory and all of it capped off with the peaked roof of a steeple. The whole thing seemed to be held together by every conceivable means of holding things together that, in their natural state, had no desire to be held together. There were boards nailed to panels that had been glued to exterior walls which were sealed with tar and wax and some kind of chewing gum. All of it was tied in place by ropes and elastic bands which had been stretched and wound so as to create a tension that gave all of this thing the air of uh, impending pinwheeling disaster. As Mr. Humphreys pulled the cart to a stop, he dismounted, Took up a position in front of the Tower of Doom and made a grand gesture toward the thing, grinning a toothy grin of badger pride. Behold, madam, the Exeter 3, mostly made up of the surviving pieces of the Exeters 1 and 2. It has everything two people need to launch themselves into space, including a library, a bathtub, And a thinking lounge. Up until this moment, the only thing I have lacked is a stable propulsion unit. But now, thanks to you generously crashing your spaceship in the park, we now have the final component. And the great news, to go with the excellent news, is that I have kept the entire thing in a state of launch readiness and all we need to do is attach your contribution and the steam engine from my capsule-moving machine, and we are ready to launch. By this point, Mr. Humphreys had turned his back to Selina so as to admire the full glory of what he had created. That's why he didn't see the tears gathering in her eyes. I knew when I saw you that... You were not the kind of intrepid explorer who would want to be stranded on one planet for long. And I also knew that I held the solution to your predicament. I could not be more happy to be of service, my good lady. Yes, indeed, never fear, for I will have you back out among the stars before you can snap your strangely furless fingers. We will have you back out there charting the wonders of the undiscovered galaxy like the great and undaunted pioneer you clearly are. But I'm not! It was half scream and half sob, and it almost knocked Mr. Humphreys completely over. He wheeled around to find Selina sitting on the ground in tears, her hands palm out to her side. I'm not an explorer, and I'm not a pioneer, I'm just a little girl, and I'm lost, and I'm scared, and I want to go home. I miss my mom, and my dad, and even my little brother, and I'm sorry I didn't listen. I'm sorry I was playing where I wasn't supposed to. I'm sorry I wasn't paying enough mind to my homework. I'm sorry I wasted all my potential, and I'm just plain sorry, and I don't know what to do. After the cry she had cried the night before, Selena Simon had thought that she'd never have enough tears to cry again. Turned out she was quite wrong, because when she ran out of words, the sobs came in great, racking torrents. Mr. Humphreys looked on. Slowly, his expression changed from one of shock and dismay to one of sympathy he took off his hat and held it to his chest along with the silver handle of his walking stick then he reached out a paw and rested it gently on selena's shoulder there there miss shyman it's going to be all right and i apologize if i was a bit too enthusiastic selena's sobs started to lessen in intensity miss shyman I cannot assure you that I can get you home to your mother, and your father, and even your little brother. But I can assure you that the Exeter Three will fly, that it is spaceworthy, and that where it is going is closer to your home than Managirius is. I will not promise that I can take you back where you came from, but I would be honored if you would let me try. But what if we can't find the Walter? What if I never see my family again? Well, I can't promise that you will. But if you stay here and don't try, I can promise that you won't. Selina gave one big sniffle of tears and snot, and then she nodded that she saw the truth in what Mr. Humphreys was saying. That was when Mr. Humphreys said the quote, the line that would become the tattoo of choice for college sophomores throughout the settled galaxy, finally once and for all displacing the long reign of J.R.R. Tolkien's Not All Who Wander Are Lost, the quote that would sell more merchandise and spawn more essays than any single sentence since the last line of A Road Not Taken. Mr. Humphreys waited until Selina's tears had cleared up enough for them to look one another in the eye, and then he said, After all, Miss Shyman." He tapped his cane and smiled his badgery smile. You have to start from where you are, for that is where all great journeys begin. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. This marks the end of the batch of episodes that I uploaded in bulk, which means we're now going to the weekly episode uh, portion of our journey. So... I'll be back next Monday with a new episode of Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Thanks for listening.